0: Make your way over to Nehemiah chapter 5 right now, this morning. Uh, we are going to finish chapter 5 this morning, and then we're going to take <clears throat> a break from Nehemiah as we begin our summer psalms that we've been doing every year since we've begun. You'd think you'd, you'd finish the psalms, we still have a long way to go, uh, but we'll spend summer in the psalms, and then we'll pick back up in, in August with chapter 6 of Nehemiah, uh, so last week, just to kind of remind you, last week we, we learned many of the Jewish workers were in dire straits financially. They had mortgaged their their farmland, their land. They, they couldn't afford grain to even feed their family with. Some of them had sold their, their daughters, their children into slavery. And, and this was all brought about because Jewish nobles had been incredibly greedy. They had been taking advantage of, of those in a desperate situation, their, their fellow Jews, their, their, their covenant community in that way. And we saw all this made Nehemiah extremely angry. He called the nobles out for their greed. He, he brought these public charges against them. And the response of the nobles was exactly what you'd want to see from anyone who has been confronted, called out for their sin. They confess their sin rather than denying it. They don't make excuses. They don't even justify, well, here's why we did what we did, or anything like that. They, they gave back the land, they returned the grain and the wine and the money and everything else that they had extracted from, from people. Uh, they wiped away all the debts of the people. And, and all this was at incredibly great cost to them personally. Uh, but what they did there was, was beautiful. It was a work of the Lord in, in their lives, where we see the, the greedy become generous in our passage today, we're going to be seeing the blessing uh, of a generous heart that is put into action. That's what we're going to see in the life of, of Nehemiah here. Uh, we're going to begin in, in verse 14 of Nehemiah chapter 5. If you got it in front of you, just just follow along with me. Moreover, From the time that I was appointed to be their governor in the land of Judah, from the twentieth year to the thirty-second year of Artaxerxes, the king, twelve years, neither I nor my brothers ate the food allowance of the governor. The former governors who were before me laid heavy burdens on the people and took from them for their daily ration forty shekels of silver. Even their servants lorded it over the people, but I did not do so because of the fear of God. I also preserved in the work on, his, on this wall, and we acquired no land, and all my servants were gathered there for the work. Moreover, there were at my table 150 men, Jews, and officials, besides those who came to us from, from the nations that were around us. Now, what was prepared at my expense for each day was one ox, and six choice sheep, and birds, and every ten days all kinds of wine in abundance. Yet for all this, I did not demand the food allowance of the governor, because the service was too heavy on this people. Remember for my good, O my God, all that I have done for this people. The grass withers, the flower fades. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, incline our hearts to your testimonies. Open our eyes that we may behold wondrous things in your word. Make our wandering hearts to follow you, to fear you, to truly be in awe of you. May we be Satisfied today with your steadfast love and your incomparable generosity to us. Now Lord, we ask that you'd give us focus, that you'd enlighten our minds for this time in your word. It's in Jesus' name that we pray. Amen. So shortly after World War I, Paul Mazur of Lehman Brothers Financial Service said this to his, his peers. He said, we must shift America from a needs to a desires culture. People must be trained to desire, to want new things, even before the old have been entirely consumed. We must shape a new mentality. Man's desire must overshadow his needs. What do you think? Did they succeed in that? Is that our mentality as a nation now? How how many of you... uh, Your purchases, your own purchases lately, right, have been driven by a desire for something more than a genuine need for something. Uh, I, me, I will absolutely confess that, you know. Not too long ago, I needed a new Apple Watch because there wasn't enough memory on my old one to upgrade it without this annoying little reset feature, right? I I needed a new pair of running shoes because my old pair were fine, but the new ones look amazing, right? These are the ways we kind of go through these things. I know, I've learned to use that word need in situations where I absolutely know it's a want. I need a new this, I need a new that, I need this, right? It, it, it just makes us feel better about that. We have this desire for more money in the bank, for more stuff, and it's, it's left us, if we're honest, with very little generosity, or far too generosity compared to what we're, we're seeing in God's Word. You see, being generous is is probably made more complex in in our culture, our our setting, by this false assumption that no one around us really needs our generosity anyway. Because no one, or very few that we know, are in absolute dire straits. But what we see in Nehemiah today is a man who is extremely generous. So let's have a look at that. Uh, And keep in mind, this chapter can get a little weird, this section, because... It, you almost fall into this idea that, it, that you think you're reading like a captain's log, as if it was written as it went down, as everything happened, and then we did this. Uh, and, and so remember, it's, it's not a captain's log. Uh, it's written years later, when, when either he's reflecting back on it, or someone else is reflecting back on it, and, and, and using his, his, his journals or something like that. And, and so he's reflecting on, on having been this governor uh, over Judah for 12 years, and he's, he's sharing how he's handled his wealth while he's been in this position, now, as the governor, he had this legal right. He was absolutely entitled to an allowance of food, meaning he could take from the local farmers, the local ranchers, uh, and, and it would be credited to them. It was, it was his right to do so. He, he could uh, collect taxes from everyone living in that region, and, and not just for the king, but for his own uses uh, as well. Some of it was for the infrastructure in the area. Right? You libertarians, you're like, That's, that should be all of it right there. Uh, some of it was for entertaining foreign dignitaries, for, for running the, the household. And, and some of it was simply so he could live in this lavish lifestyle that was expected of a governor, expected of someone in this political position. And, and he explains the governors before him, they required a ration of 40 shekels from the locals every day. Now, it's hard for us to really put that in terms today. We also don't know, if that what he's spending every day? Or is it actually collected from every individual that way? Uh, regardless, right, even if we can't put it into modern terms, we know that his whole intention of mentioning this is, look at this incredibly heavy burden that was placed on the people at this time, on the average person. Now, now despite it being his legal right, he could do it. He had every right to do it, he did not collect this daily ration from those le- less wealthy fellow Jews. And, and he did not permit his staff to do it either. You're not going to put a burden on them either. To, to put this in, in some sort of modern terms again, <clears throat> it's like they, they probably paid the, the federal income tax to the king, but they weren't being asked any, any state income tax to be paid to Nehemiah, which would have lightened the load. Now there's two motivations that he actually gives for doing this, for for his generosity and providing for others, uh, and instead of you know greedily demanding from those in need. And, and the first reason that he gives is very clear. Look at verse 15. Uh, he is generous instead of greedy because of the fear of God. His generosity was driven by the fear of God. The, those previous officials who took advantage of the Jewish people had no fear of God. Now, it's, it's right that we are to come into corporate worship with a sense of reverence for God. We should, we ought to, but but the same fear of God that leads us to, to reverence in worship, it will also lead us to behave lovingly towards others, generous towards others. John Murray, who uh, he helped found Westminster Seminary 85 years ago, said this, he said, the fear of God is the soul of godliness. That's, that's what drives it. Has it ever occurred to you that the reason that, that you don't obey God or, or the reason that you struggle against, your struggle against sin is at times apathetic or, or weak or just seems powerless at times is, is that you, do, you simply do not fear God in the way that the scripture calls us to? Is it possible that you don't fear God because you don't really understand God? Or at least it's not in the forefront of your mind on a regular basis? Do you imagine God more like a laser chasing cat house or house cat than a dangerous, powerful lion? Jerry Bridges, in one of his books, asks this question Do you desire to be a godly person? And the assumption is you're going to answer that, yes, I desire to be a godly person. And and he then gives the answer, he says, then you must understand and grow in the fear of God. When the scriptures say that we are to fear God, it doesn't mean that we fear in the sense of a, a child with a... A physically or verbally abusive father fears him it's it's not the fear that you would feel if you're being held at gunpoint it's not the fear of something evil that means you harm the the scriptures the scripture mean what scriptures mean is the fear that compels our hearts to just tremble in all of God to see his power to, to know our own worthiness and His presence, of his, his holiness. It's that fear that fills us with a reverent adoration for God. That overwhelming sense of, of His holiness that, that even alters your, your breathing pattern. Because you're just so in shock of who God is. But, but also the, the sort of fear that, that leaves you unwaveringly certain that God is your priority. That He is the Lord over your life. That his values and his views are to be your values and your views. His prescribed way of living is the aim of your way of living. That that's the desire of our hearts. In, in, in what context in your life might you struggle to remember today the, the primary aspect of fearing God, who he is? I'll tell you, it's, it's always changing, but in, in this moment, specific moment of history, there is a, a cultural compelling movement to accept everything li- related to LGBTQ. There, there is a, a passionate surge of support for abortion right now. And for Honest, these views are, are being brilliantly marketed and championed by corporations and celebrities and people that we like, people we enjoy, products that we. Probably love too much. And so we must remember that we are, we are the creature and only God is the creator. The, the holy fear of God in, in your heart and in your mind must be stronger than the fear of man. And I say this because if, if it's not your, your desire, you will desire to give your support to these unbiblical views simply because these views are widely accepted and celebrated in culture. It's way easier to be on that side. Christian, the fear of the Lord, even if it will lead you to feel like a villain of times, must be your priority. Now, now here's the interesting thing. Nehemiah doesn't even mention that. I, I mentioned that as a modern thing, right? But, but fearing God has led Nehemiah, not, not just to some view of holding some biblical ethical view right but to a way of life that you and I probably do not associate with fearing God or even with godliness it has led him to this radical open-handed practice of generosity right look look how I fear God by the way that I handle the money that God has given me look how I I fear God by, by, by the generosity not just a list of things he's against, but a, a sacrificial giving of what he has, what God has given him to others. He, he lays out how he didn't obtain any land, that, it, you know, that he paid his servants uh, to also work on the wall, that he himself was working on the wall. Verse 17, he regularly fed 150 people at his own expense. How many of you have listened to a mother of teenage boys explain to you how expensive it is to feed them suddenly? Right? Two or three of them, maybe. A few of their friends show up. Can you imagine 150 people showing up at your house for dinner over and over and over again? Do you know how many gallons of milk you're going to go through? Right? He listed out, a day required, they an ox, six sheep, a whole bunch of birds, and wine in abundance. It's all meat in there, right? Uh, In modern terms... That's, that's a lot of nugget trays. That is a lot of wine that they're going through. And, and the point is, as it always is, is that generosity was incredibly costly to Nehemiah. This wasn't his spare change. This wasn't, oh, yeah, another two bucks, we can get an extra piece of pizza. You know, it wasn't that kind of thing. It was costly. And so then in verse 18, we learn the second motivation of Nehemiah's generosity. The first is this fear of God that has driven him to be this radical generosity. And the second one is this deep sense of compassion for those those who were poorer than he was. Look at verse 18. The service was too heavy on this people. He could see. They can't handle this. Nehemiah would not add his weight to the shoulders of an already struggling community. Or, Or as Derek Thomas puts it, he says... As a relatively wealthy man, Nehemiah saw it as his duty and delight to share with others from his bounty. And then this chapter ends with this odd, self-righteous sounding prayer of Nehemiah. He, he prays, remember for my good, O God, all that I have done for this people. Is he wanting credit here? Is he wanting to know, like, I get my, I get my holy points, right? Is, is he like the Pharisees, desiring to be seen giving in the temple? Is he flouting his generosity? Look everyone, look how generous I am. Can you put my name on the building, right? That kind of thing? That's not the case here. He's writing this far in the future, right? And he's looking back and he wants God to know that he did what was right in the eyes of God. is not claiming some merit, some righteousness of his own, but rather professing sincerity in, in what he's done. He, he, it may feel odd to us to pray something like this, but we should be able to pray something like this, to say, God, I, I have done what you have asked me to do in the Scriptures. Not always with true purity in my heart, but I have genuinely sought to be generous to others. Please remember that. And it, and it might be because the results that you would expect from that aren't, aren't what he expected later on. We don't always see that. But he's saying, I've done what you've asked me to do and, and this is not a plea for salvation based, based on works of some sort. He's telling the Lord, I do fear you. I do revere you and, and my generosity, this is evidence. What about you? I mean, can you say to the Lord, I have done what you've asked me to do? It's been my goal, my hope. Even when I need correction that I've come back around to to do what you've, you've called me to do. And so then I, I want to spend the rest of our time on, on two subjects that come out of this. The first of which is the, the generosity of, of God to us. i want to touch on four areas. There's so many more than four areas. But I'm just going to touch on four. And the first is this. God is generous to you in the creation of the world. I think as the spring comes, this starts to come to my mind again every year. Uh, you think of the universe that you are in right now, that you just dwell in, right? Me- mentally, you can kind of do that Google Earth Zoom thing, right? Right up from the worm right now and, and look at the earth that we, we dwell upon. Not, not only is it amazing to look at, not only is it a, it's just amazing to wonder at how everything works, but, but we also get to experience it. God has made it so that you are able to enjoy his creation. There are are over 2,000 taste buds on your tongue. 2,000 of them. That's a number you couldn't care less about except for what that means is that you are able to experience the spice of a jalapeno or the sweetness of one of those juicy ripe peaches you'll get later in the summer. You're able to enjoy the unique combinations of sugar and butter and flour and eggs in a perfectly baked chocolate chip cookie. You have the capacity to appreciate a sunset. I promise you, your dog, your cat could not care less about how beautiful the sun is when it's setting. You can laugh at the nostalgic joy of a funny memory. You can plant a a tiny seed and and watch it grow into a plant that's going to give you tomatoes all summer long. And you can go on and on and just the beauty of creation that God has generously given you and made you able to enjoy the Apostle Paul teaches us in 1 Timothy 6.17 that God richly provides us with everything to enjoy. God provides the grapes that make your wine. He provides the, the scent of lavender and the taste of lavender. He provides your, your family and your friends for you to enjoy. God has generously provided you through, through the glorious general revelation, as we call it, of, of creation. Second, God has generously given us this special revelation that we call the scriptures, the, the, the Bible, the word of God, right? This is the gift of God. Through these words, we learn of the, the perfect, perfection of creation, of the, the fall into sin and, and to, into death and the separation from our creator. We, we learn of the redemption accomplished by Jesus upon the cross and through the resurrection, and we learn of, of the restoration that God will make all things right? We know that. Even as we twist, dwell in a world where all things are not right. Similarly, God has been generous to us in, in the covenant. Right? Abraham did nothing deserving of God establishing a covenant. You, you and I also have done nothing deserving of, of being in covenant with God, and yet we are. God's covenant promises and blessings to us display his, his generosity to us. Not not because of what we have or have done, but because of what we need. Third, God has been generous to to give you everything you have. Everything. Your body, your mind, the skills that you have or the skills that you have developed over the years. The, The fact that your hard work actually results in learning new abilities. The money in your bank account, the house that you live in, the family. And I know in your mind there's that cynical voice that always pops in when we start thinking about this. Yeah, but everyone doesn't have that. Not everyone has that. True. But you do. You do. You you don't worry if you're going to have food tomorrow or where you're going to sleep tonight. God is generous to you. Have you acknowledged that to the Lord? So we read in James 1:17 every good gift and every perfect gift is from above, coming down from the Father of lights. What do you have that you did not generously receive from the hand of the Lord? Fourth and most significantly, God is generous to us in the gospel. Romans 8.32 teaches us that God did not spare his own son, but gave him up for us all. And, and what's the most well-known verse in history probably? Right, it shows up every sporting event, even pro wrestlers, you say this? John 3.16, for God so loved the world that he gave his only son. He gave, that whoever believes in him should not perish but have eternal life. Or, or as Titus 2.13 tells us, Jesus Christ gave himself for us to redeem us. Jesus is generous to you in the gospel, providing what you need, providing what you could never obtain for yourself—peace with God. The last thing I, I want to point us towards this morning is this: that because our, our Triune God is generous, we, His people, are to be generous as well, and He tells us that I am to be generous. That, that should be a characteristic of who I am. You are to be generous. That is a characteristic of who you are as a child of God. And so without going into details, um, I did want to say this. I, our, our family has been wrestling with this gut-wrenching, heartbreaking reality of death this past week. Um, especially Laura and, and Sadie who have been really close to this. Um, That's where my mind has been. Life is short. How do we fill our days in ways that are worthwhile and honor the Lord? How do we live in a way that embraces this gift of, of life, right? How do we do that? How do we laugh? How do we dance and enjoy food and and the sunsets, and at the same time always keep the gospel central and and honestly most of this week I found it difficult to be preparing to preach on this passage on on generosity not because I don't think it's wonderful but just because my mind has been fixated on on death and and still I also know that you're not necessarily wrestling with this in the same way that we have been wrestling with this and yet in the the providence of God I've come to see that there. The two issues actually intersect quite beautifully. For, for greed is, is driven by this ridiculous sense that somehow this life is all that there is. That you, that you need your money, that it is your money, so that you can have more security for your future, for this life only. Well, generosity in our hearts is this, this letting go of possessions. It's the, the letting go of our time. It's the letting go of our financial wealth for the, for the benefits of others. And generosity only works when we, we trust that God will provide what we need now and provide what we need forever. See, and generosity is supercharged when we realize that life as you know it will end. Right? This is where I can go all Oprah on you. You're going to die, and you're going to die. it would be a little morbid. I think I just did it, though. Um, and not a single dime that you own, no possession, is going with you. Only your soul. Further, Christian, God is generous to you, and he calls you to be generous to the others. And one way that we, we live well is to live generously. Generous with our money, generous with our time, our abilities, our skills, generous with our possessions that we're not so fixated that, oh, they might break, right? Or are, are, are generous with our food, generous with our hospitality, with our, our patience and forgiveness to others, G- generous with the sharing of the gospel, right? No shortage in that. G- generosity is a distinguishing characteristic of all who have been redeemed by Jesus and filled with the Holy Spirit, But listen to this quote from Raymond Brown. He says, Christians need money as much as anybody else. But we refuse to idolize it. It is a commodity to use, not a God to be worshipped. A commodity to be used, not a God to be worshipped. The Apostle Paul, writing to the Corinthians, said, you will be enriched in every way, right? You're going to be enriched in every way, and then he points out, "Here's listen to why God is going to enrich you in every way. He says, to be generous in every way, which through us will produce thanksgiving to God. Your generosity produces thanksgiving to God. In Acts chapter 2, we learn about the first century church, and, and there we learn that Awe came upon every soul. That's the way the ESV puts it. It's actually the Greek word for, uh, ph- you know, like phobia. You know that one? Fear. Uh, that's what we're talking about here. Fear came upon them. Awe came upon them. Uh, and, and a few verses later in Acts 24, or 2.45, we read, They were selling their possessions and belongings and distribute the proceeds to all as any had need. Now, generosity does not have to look like that. I'm not asking you to sell your house, your car, your AirPods, whatever it is, and start giving away everything, but generosity has to look like something. After all, God is more than a a theological proposition to us, right? Do you fear God? Do, Do you live in awe of your generous creator? Do you? Derek Thomas again, he says, The absence of fear is the reason why we ignore the needy, trample on the blessings of fellowship, and accumulate worldly toys. The absence of fear. Nehemiah didn't consider what was beneficial or most beneficial for his finances, but rather, how how can the money that God has blessed me with be beneficial to the purposes of God? And yes, he had to be wise with it. So that he'd have money for next week and the next month and the years later to be able to do that. He wasn't foolish with it, just giving it all away in one go. He was wise, but, but he was wise for the purpose of being able to be generous. Now listen to just a few verses I want to share with you. Proverbs 19:17: Whoever is generous to the poor lends to the Lord, and he will repay, repay him for his deed. Hebrews 13:16: Do not neglect to do good and to share what you have For such sacrifices are pleasing to God. When we share what we have, it is pleasing to God. Acts 20, 35, In all things I have shown you that by working hard in this way we must help the weak and remember the words of the Lord Jesus, how he himself said it is more blessed to give than to receive. 1 Timothy 6.17 begins with, with Paul saying to, uh, right, he's writing to this younger pastor, Timothy, and, and he says this, as for the rich in this present age, he's setting it up. I've got something I want you to tell the rich in this present age. There's a charge, a challenge, uh, this instruction to give to the rich. So consider yourselves rich, all of us rich right now, as, as I charge you in the way that Paul does. And I'm gonna do it where it's coming towards you as a charge rather than just reading what, what Paul says. Um, do not be haughty. Don't be arrogant. Prideful is what he's saying. Don't be that way. Do not set your hopes on the uncertainty of wealth. Don't do that. That's not what your hope is. Set your hope on God who richly provides you with everything to enjoy. That's where you set your hope on God who richly provides you everything to enjoy. Do good, be crazy in good works, be generous. And ready to share. This is what he's saying. Tell the rich this. Be generous and ready to share. And doing that is how you will store up treasure for eternity. I don't know the details of that. I can't tell you the details of what that treasure for eternity looks like. But I know that God says that in his word. It means something. Generosity is how you take hold of that which is truly life. That's the last charge that he he says to give the rich. And you can go back and read this all, 1 Timothy 6:17 and the verses that follow. Now, remember, generosity does not have a percentage attached to it. It doesn't have a number attached to it. You don't have to be rich to be generous. People notice it more when you are, but the Lord is pleased when he sees his children generous in any amount, Um Even 2 Corinthians 9, 7, not 100% talking about this, but the idea is here, each one must give as he has decided in his heart, not reluctantly or under compulsion, for God loves a cheerful giver. I mean, can you remember a time when you were blessed by someone else's generosity to you? Either because you were in a desperate mode or it was just a blessing to you? Just what it communicated? You, You can be that blessing to others. And I might just begin by asking yourself, honestly, Lord, am I I driven by greed or generosity? Let me see my own heart, Lord. Am I generous with the money, the skills, the time that God has blessed me with? All of those are commodities, right? And and then pray, and ask yourself, how can my generosity increase? Where, how? Well, we dwell in a world of insatiable desire and greed and envy we, we as a church, as God's people we, we can be different we, we can be a community of great contentment that is overflowing in generosity and so to whom will you be generous this week? is there someone who comes to mind? generous with money generous with your time generous to share possessions you have possessions God has given you Wh- whom has God placed in your path? Who-, who needs your generosity? Is it someone in this covenant community or someone at work, or at school, someone who lives near you? Um, <clears throat> I'm going to give you a dumb example. It's not my notes, but it just came to mind. Um, j- just because sometimes we think of generosity like you've got to meet only someone in poverty, right? Someone who's desperately in need and that's the only generosity. And, and I'll say this, uh, we have a friend whose mom in Texas sent Laura home with these Amazing chips from HEB. They are, I don't even know what they are black pepper something chips. Uh, and we had this bag, and somehow she saw a picture of us, of me eating them, stealing them from Laura. And uh, <clears throat> this one bag, and, and somehow this mo- her mother found out about it. our Laura's friend's mom got the picture and saw it. And so she sent five bags of these black pepper chips from HEB. We can afford the chips. It's not that we desperately need money or that that was the issue and yet this box showing up from her was this weird generous thing of, of just communicating something and it was incredibly encouraging. And I, and I only say that just because your, your generosity doesn't just have to meet a desperate need. It, it can be an encouragement to, to people. Look to see how you can use your money in that way. So who will be blessed by your generosity? Let's pray. Lord God Almighty, make us strong, supportive. Make us people who honor you. Make us a gospel-centric covenant community. Deliver us from pride and arrogance, from greed and discontentment, and make us grateful for the generosity that we have received from your hand. Father, we ask that you'd make our hands like yours, like our Father's overflowing in generosity to others and especially to those in great need. It's in Jesus' name that we pray. Amen.